Uh, throughout history, Palm Sunday has been recognized as the day that Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Into the city of Jerusalem just prior to his crucifixion. It was around six days before his crucifixion. And if you were there, you would think, this is it. This is probably the most profound moment in Jewish history because Jesus has done amazing things throughout his life. And now we know this is the man. He is going to be the king. And so this is the thinking. It was a celebration of a new king of Israel. So they thought. And, and, and it was a wonderful reunion right before this happened. I don't know if you realize this, okay? If you were here about three, four weeks ago, I, I believe it was the first Sunday we gathered together, I talked about Lazarus and uh, Lazarus and how Jesus performed a miracle and he brought him back to life. And everybody's like, whoa, this guy now has made it very clear. You're not only of, of, of the seed of David, which was the king of Israel in the Old Testament, but you have a profound ability that nobody else has. You have the ability to heal the sick but, sick, but also raise the dead. And they've seen it before. But for whatever reason, this one stood out to them more than ever before. It was like they had seed thoughts that this could be the Messiah. But at this moment, it was like, you are the man. And so what happened just before this triumphal entry into Jerusalem Jesus was eating with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha at their house in Bethany, which is two miles from Jerusalem, which is really cool. He had this close relationship. Lazarus was one of his closest friends. He just was raised from the dead, and they're eating together at a table, having discussion, and getting ready to celebrate what's called the Passover or the Feast of the Passover, which means everybody from around uh, is going to, for miles around, they call them pilgrims. They're going on this pilgrimage to get to Jerusalem and they're going to celebrate the feast of the Passover. And so Jesus, right prior to this, is with Lazarus. He's eating. He's enjoying this time. He sends the disciples out to get a donkey, which is so weird. So he sends the disciples out and he says, I need you to go get this donkey, but I don't want you just to get the donkey, but I want you to get the mother of the donkey. Because I want the smallest and the youngest colt that you can get. Bring both of them along. Because one will not go without the other. For whatever reason, donkeys are stubborn. We've used them in our Easter performance at, at Fellowship Baptist Church. They just don't want to move. If they're very young donkeys, they'll move if the mother donkey is with them. So he did this. And as he ate, he celebrated with his friends. I'm giving a lot of history here. It's going to be very historic today, okay? I, I want some clarity for you guys. And so the next day, he finds himself getting up, getting on the donkey, going to the town. And what happened in that city when the king as we refer to Jesus, came to town, some profound things happened. Let me start off by asking, answering some questions, just to make sure we're all on the same page. Kids are having a good time today. I, we even have a sound barrier there, and it seems like they're working right through that. Uh, what, first of all, why did, Jesus, why did Jesus go to Jerusalem? According to John chapter 12, which is the same account as Matthew chapter 21, he came for the feast of the Passover. So the people were gathering for this feast that happened in such a way that it was a huge celebration. And the reason this celebration was so important to the Jewish people is because the Passover retells the story of Israel's rescue from Egypt. Now, if you know Jewish history, if you know the Word of God, if you know the Bible and, and biblical history, you'll know all the way back in the Old Testament, Pharaoh had the people of God's people, the chosen people, the Israelites, put into captivity. 
And then Moses shows up. He goes to deliver the people. And through that, there was plagues. Finally, he said, you may take the people. He releases them with a lie tagged onto it because he still went after them. But right before he released the people, we know that something profound happened. It was the last plague. And that plague was what's referred to as the death angel. Every firstborn would die. Now, this has never happened in the history of the world. But historically, bypassing the Bible, even though the Bible is historic, and I believe the Bible, and don't take that the wrong way when I say bypass the Bible, we know you can go to the history books that this has been proven and documented. It's this very thing has happened. This has taken place. Even through the history of Pharaoh, there is a missing link there between the father and the son because the son died, the firstborn. So he never took the throne. The Sphinx actually has written on the side of it this history. So it's proven, documented. This, this really happened. And so here we are with the celebration of the Passover, reflecting back on the fact that there had to be a lamb. For whatever reason, this was the way God chose it to be. Kill the lamb, take the blood, put it on the doorpost above the door. And if that is done, if this is fulfilled, then the death angel will not affect the home. It will not come into the home to take the first child, the firstborn child. And so we see this reflection looking back and celebrating. They never wanted to forget this. This happened like 15 year, 1,500 years prior. And they said, we're never going to forget this. This is the most important thing in Jewish history. The other reason why, and, well, let me do this. Another question that people have asked. Why did he ride on, on a donkey? What is so profound about this? According to the book of John, the account in chapter 12 and verse 14, the Bible said he took a young donkey and he, and he rode there on that donkey and he came into the city. People have asked the question, why would he choose a donkey? And there's a couple of reasons why. One Every king would ride on the king's horse that represented the tallest of all horses, the stallion. And then you had a warrior horse. A war horse was the top general would ride, and it was lower in height than the king's horse. And then you had the common horse that the other soldiers would ride. Don't even know what that would be called. But if a king was to ride a donkey, he rode a donkey to celebrate the peace that he was bringing to the city. But Jesus went a little further than that. He said, I not only want to ride a donkey to represent peace, but I want to ride a donkey to represent being humble. I have not come like everybody thought I would come. I'm a different type of king. I didn't come to rage war. I come to bring peace. And I want to bring peace in such a way that I'm showing it in a humble fashion. His mother rode a donkey when he was going to be born. He rode a donkey just before he died. Interesting, right? But it was not just any donkey. It was a small donkey. So, uh, no disrespect to Jesus, but probably his feet drug the ground. If I rode the donkey, I'd be just fine. <laughs> I'd do really well. But he, in the statue that he may had, was so tall that his feet drug the ground. He said, I want to show so much humility. I want to show you that I am not a king as you have imagined. I'm a humble servant. And so he rode that donkey for that very reason. And then, why did the people, the Jews, reverence Jesus as the king of Israel? They said, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord, according to John chapter 12, verse 13. Well, they were ready for a king. They haven't had a king. They're tired of the Roman Empire controlling them, dictating them. They said, this is enough. 
We know that a king has been prophesied, which just simply means a long time ago, somebody documented that there will be a king to come, and that documentation was ordained by God. That's what prophecy is. And they said, this is it. This has got to be the man. This has got to be the king that's going to come to save us. This is going to be a political leader. This is going to be a military man. He's going to change everything. All right? Everybody with me so far? Yeah. Yep. All right. I just want to make sure we're all clear on this. So why did they welcome Jesus, though, with the word Hosanna? We heard this. If you've been a part of church or know anything about religious history or biblical history, the word Hosanna is used. Well, the, the, the Hebrew translation of the word is pray, save us, or please save us. In other words, they said, we may not be in the bondage of Israel, I, I mean, excuse me, Egypt from 1,500 years ago, but we are in bondage to the Roman Empire. Save us. Hosanna, save us. You are our king. You are here for a reason. Please do something. And so they're declaring this. And at the same time, they're cutting down branches from the palm trees, laying them on the ground, laying their garments on the ground. And that was symbolic to say victory and triumph. That's why we call it the triumphal entry. If you were a leader at this period of time, you made sure there's palm trees around your palace because it, it represented power and triumph. And so they were saying two things when they laid down the palm leaves. They were saying, number one, you're going to ride over, trample under the authority of the Roman Empire. Number two, we reverence you with the triumphal power that you have and you deserve. Does everybody understand? Hence, Palm Sunday. That's where the whole idea of Palm Sunday came, up, came from. But there, there was a misunderstanding of the prophecy that was mentioned in Psalms chapter 118 and verse 26. And that was this. In Psalms 118, the idea was that the Messiah, the King, this power will come into the town and he will even ride upon a donkey. But when he got there, he would go into the temple, he would make sacrifice and rule and reign. And they're like, this is it. Now, this is when the whole script flips. This is crazy. And if you haven't really dived into this, you'll miss it. So I want to draw your attention to, to Matthew chapter 21. We were kind of looking at the account of John chapter 12, but now we're going to look at Matthew 21. And we're going to look at the king when he came to town and, and the three things he did. Three things that are applicable to our lives today. All right? We can apply these things to our lives just like Jesus illustrated it in his life at the time of Palm Sunday. So in Matthew chapter 21, we see the account that Jesus received the donkey. He got on the donkey just like it was prophesied. And the king comes to town with a meek spirit. And when he arrives, the Bible says that he got off of that donkey after he rode over their clothes and the palm leaves, rode into Jerusalem on this profound day, which is the feast of the Passover. By the way, the city is packed full of people. I mean, they're going to the temple. There's tourists. There's people that haven't been home in a year. They're excited. I mean, we got like six days and we're going to eat the feast of the Passover. This is a big, big deal. This is a celebration. This is not mourning. This is celebrating. I mean, this is like party time. Uh, imagine your, your team is about to play. Everybody's going to be tailgating. This is kind of, in essence, the feel that's going on in the city. And so these people are laying down their garments. They're laying down the palm leaves, and they're thinking this. And here's what they're imagining. He's going to get off that donkey. He's going to go into the temple. He's going to make sacrifice, and then he's going to reign. This is not just any feast of the Passover. This is a big day. Instead... 
And here's the first thing I want you to understand. The first thing the king did when he came to town is he purged the temple. So the Bible says in Matthew chapter 21, verse 12, after he got off the donkey, and Jesus went into the temple, in verse 12, and cast out all of them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables and the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and said this. What did he say in verse 13? He said unto them, It is written, My house shall, shall be called the house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. So the first thing he did is he purged the temple. And part of purging the temple is the sin of a hypocrisy. He said... This is not going to happen. Everybody, first of all, is going, what is going on? You are making enemies with the Pharisees. You're making a scene. You're flipping out. This is called righteous anger, by the way. There's a, there's a difference between just being angry and being angry and sin not. Jesus was angry and sin not. So he comes in and he makes this big decision that I'm not going to tolerate what's going on here. So he's flipping the tables and so forth, driving people out. The Bible has said that he put together almost a whip and drove them out. And so they're going, okay, this was the first step in their mind that maybe he isn't the man we thought he was going to be. And six days later, they say, crucify him. How do you go worshiping somebody to wanting to kill somebody? Well, this was the beginning of it all. So here's what he does. During the feast day of the Passover, the people from all over the region came together to celebrate. But here's the people that are called money changers exchanging the money. Just like if you go in a foreign country and you take your money, you have to have an exchange so you can use that money in Jerusalem. You could only use the money that was taken in, or used in Jerusalem. You had to have money exchangers. But there was a 20% 20% increase, basically, of the money. So these guys were like, we can make money on this day. Everybody and their mothers in town will take their money before they go in the temple, we'll make money off of it, and we'll give them the money that they, they, they want in exchange for what they have. But in doing so, they were making money, inflating the exchange rate of the foreign travelers. And so Jesus knew this. And he was like, this is what Jesus is thinking. I'm about to die, and this is my turn to make a difference for my father, and I'm going to make sure everybody understands what they are doing. If you're doing this exchange of money and increase in the inflation here, I'm going to put a stop to it. So he flips the table, and then the merchants, they were taking animals and selling them because nobody wanted to travel with these animals. They had doves and so forth. There's multiple animals at this time that were used for sacrifice. Very symbolic. And so they were like, we're not going to travel all these ways, take care of our kids, take care of our, our, our donkey, our, our whatever, the horse, and the animals that have to be sacrificed. And they can't be all messed up. We can't show up with a dove that's got a broken wing. I mean, there has to be the appropriate sacrifice. So they go within the temple, and everybody has like a flea market, a marketplace, and they're selling. Now, originally, this wasn't a problem. Originally, they would sell outside of the temple, which is a big fenced-in area, just put in layman's terms. And then inside of that, was inside the gate, was the temple. And before they would come in, they would buy. But these people were jacking up the prices, and they were making money. And so it was all just filled with this hypocrisy about, it's all about what we want instead of what we were meant to do, and that is to provide for the sacrifice. And then there was the sin of complacency. Uh, there was people that were buying that were cast out too. And you say, why? Because they become so complacent in their walk with Christ, they just didn't care anymore. They're like, I just want to get it done. 
It's those people that come on Sunday and are like, I just got to do this. Check. I got through it. You know what I'm saying? There's hypocrisy. They say, I love Jesus, but they, they really don't believe in what they say, just like these people that were money changers. And then you have this complacency where people are just going through the motions. You see what I'm saying? It wasn't real. It wasn't sincere. And so Jesus, the first thing he does is he purges the temple. This was very personal because the Bible says that Jesus declared, my house shall be called the house of prayer. Do you notice that? My house. This is interesting. The temple was where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt. What does that mean? It's just a really uh, biblical way to say that's where God on earth made his presence known. If you, go through the, the, if you go through the veil from the holies to the holy of holies, this is the temple I'm talking about, the building, the temple itself, and you cross through, which was only the priest, he would go into where the very presence of God was on earth. And then he'd make the blood sacrifice for the forgiveness of all the Israelites. So they would take the sacrifice, they would sacrifice it, they'd take the blood, they'd go in where nobody else could go, and it would be the priest, and then they would make the sacrifice. And hence, today, we still have uh, Catholics and Roman Catholics still get this idea mixed up. They're still holding on to the name priest. Well, that is no longer. Uh, they hold on to the temple concept. They hold on to the confession concept. None of that is anywhere near Christianity because Jesus sealed the deal, and we'll see that in just a minute, where he made it where it's no longer necessary. I'm saying a lot, but I want you to catch this again. He said, my house. Because the presence of God was there, Jesus had the right to do something. Let me put it this way. I go to Alabama. I go to my mom and dad's house. My dad's passed on. He died about three years ago. We have cookouts there all the time. Everybody and their mother comes over. We have a good time. We usually shoot off fireworks, do redneck stuff. It's great. I have the right, being the son of my father, to go in the house, open the refrigerator, and get whatever I want because it's my dad's house. It's my mom's house. I'm going to do as I please. I have that liberty and that relationship. I'm going to do things and have fun, and I do not need the approval of my father because my father has already given me that approval. But if you come to my dad's house and you disrespect it and you want to be a redneck and you decide to take the furniture that's in the backyard, the lawn furniture, and light off fireworks and, and everything lights on fire, I'm going to have to stop you and say, you have no right to do this to my father's house. And I can speak with authority into this because I'm the father's son. You do not do this. It's inappropriate. It's wrong. You're taking advantage of what my father's done for you. And you flip the script and you're doing it for your pleasure and your way. That's hypocrisy and complacency. And you got comfortable with our kindness. And I'm putting a stop to it. There it is. Jesus. This is my father. His, his presence is made known in that temple. Is God himself in the temple? No. You cannot take God and put him in one location. It is an impossibility. He's omnipresent. That means he's everywhere at every moment. It's impossible. But the representation and the presence of God can be there if he chooses. Just like Jesus is God in the flesh. Don't want to go too far with that because I just want you to have clarity, okay? So here's where we are. And this is very important for you as a believer. When the temple was removed, which we find soon, that this takes place when they turn their back on Jesus and say, all right, fine, you're not the king, we're going to kill you, and so on and so forth. We see that on, you know, uh, just before Easter. What's interesting about that is the fact that when Jesus died and the temple was removed and the temple was destroyed soon after, 
And there was no need for the temple because Jesus now stands in the priest's place to make intercession to God. We don't need to make sacrifices. If you're doing that, something is not right. Something's very disturbing there. You don't need a priest to confess your sins to because he has enough sins in his own life. Jesus now, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ because he settled it all. Everybody on the same page. So with that in mind, we know that the temple now, if we believe in Jesus Christ, the body is called the temple. And we know that Jesus indwells in us. And if we are not careful, we can allow hypocrisy and complacency to rule and reign in our bodies. And that's why we have what's called conviction as Christians, where the Holy Spirit says, don't do that. You belong to the Heavenly Father. You are Christian. You don't live like that. You don't do that. And, then, and, and because we now are the temple. And so we have the sweet Holy Spirit. It's not, it, it, it's not feeling guilty. It's feeling the pressure of what we would call conviction when we do that which is wrong. So the king comes and he purges the temple. But then the verse 21, verse four, uh, chapter 21, verse 14, something completely odd happens. He's in the temple. He flips the tables. All of this just takes place. Everybody's like, what is going on? You ever been in a heated conversation with your spouse and then your little one comes in when your kids were little and they're like, mommy, daddy. And you're like, hey, how are you doing? Come on here. Mommy and daddy are just talking. I imagine in my mind that Jesus just flips all the tables. He's driving people out. He's yelling at them with righteous anger. And then all of a sudden, liberty of the blind and the crippled. I say liberty because they're not permitted to go within the temple. They've been cast out. But they see Jesus doing some things and changing some things. And like, he's made a way for us to go to him. And they come in to be healed. So the Pharisees are already upset because this is happening. He just messed everything up. And now you guys are coming in? What? You got the blind, you got the crippled, everybody's messed up coming in. And Jesus is like, wait, wait. I'm here for them. I didn't come just to perch the temple, but I also came because he loved the people. And the first thing he did to love the people is the Bible says he healed them in verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Jesus was intentional about people all the way up to his death. He never stopped meeting their needs. Matthew 20, just two chapters uh, before this portion of Scripture, said in verse 28, Even as the Son of Man came, not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life as a ransom for many. The only reason the Son of God came is to represent God the Father, to save mankind from their sins, also to minister and show true love. The definition of love is Jesus Christ. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And nothing outside of that is true love. Love is not love. Love is Jesus. He's the definition of love. You can't bypass that. It's an impossibility. There's a definition of good. There's a definition of evil. There's a definition of truth. And there's a definition of love. All of those definitions outside of evil is represented by God. He's the foundation of it all. Does that make sense? I hope. And so going along with this, we see that he healed them. And then the Bible says that he ministered to them. He was there for them. And I love the fact that we can relate to this. And I want you to picture this. You say, well, we can't heal people. We can pray for their healing. We could lay hands and pray, but ultimately God's going to do the healing. But I'm going to tell you, it is, your it is a necessity on your life as a Christian to heal people in the sense of their needs. 
People are dealing with marital issues. If you can relate to what they're dealing with, you can intervene and help heal that marriage. Or maybe you can help heal their situation with their children. You speak into it. I used the, I used the, uh, the pot last week and talked about all the cracks in it and how it represents our story. I'm going to tell you, your story has the ability to speak into people's lives and help heal their, their situation. That 1 John 3, uh, chapter 3, and verse 17 says, But whosoever hath this world's good, and seeth his, his brother having need, and shut up his bowels of compassion, that means love and care, how dwelleth the love of God in him? How, how do you love God, or say you love God if you don't love people? And you know what the other way that God's Son, Jesus, loved people? Not just by healing them, but by teaching them. So if you go a little bit forward in Matthew chapter 21, verse 23, the Bible says that he began to teach them. He was teaching the, the, the priests, the elders, the people, everybody. He, he, he was healing people, and then he started investing in them and teaching them. So the first thing he did was he started critiquing with passion the Pharisees. He put them in their place. And then they said, what, what, what authority do you have? Who are you? And so he flips the script on them and he said, well, what kind of authority do you have? And he starts to get in this discussion with them to put them in their place and to help them understand. I'm the son of God. I am not just a king. I'm the king of kings. And so then he goes further into it and he starts to weep, not literally, but with compassion. He starts to invest into Jerusalem and to compel them not to turn their back on God because he knew that they were going to turn from God. They were going to try to over override Rome on their own in their own power, bypass Jesus, crucify him, and everything that they know of would be ruined. So he starts speaking and teaching them. And then he starts to speak in the next chapter to the disciples. And he says, I need to prepare you now that I am going to die. I am a king, but I'm not like the king they imagined. I'm the king that's going to die for all men's sins. And I want you to understand what I'm about to do is going to change history because I'm going to save people and by giving my life. And so through that, he invested in teach. I know this. The Bible is all, every passage of scripture is important for us to understand. 2 Timothy 3.15 says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction, and righteousness. That's what we just saw in Jesus' teaching. He reproved, he rebuked, and then he exhorted. He took the disciples and he said, let me tell you what I'm about to do and why you need to understand it. I'm about to change history. I'm not only going to die, but I'm going to raise from the dead. I'm going to come back alive. And when I do, I'm going to give an opportunity for every man, woman, and child across the world and into the future until I come back again to accept me. And all they have to do is believe that I am Jesus, the Son of God, that I lived, I died, and I rose again. And if they can believe that, their life can be changed forever. They can have the hope of heaven, but they can't believe anything else. And let me tell you something. There's a reason why there's thousands of different religions and ideas out there. Because Satan is a manipulator. He wants you to think of different avenues that the devil would put out there for you to get to heaven. But Jesus says, I'm the only way. You have to reject any other idea and understand I am the foundation of truth and there is no other way. And so Jesus explains this. You may not be a small group leader. You may not be a pastor or preacher, but it is your duty. It is your responsibility to love people, 
by not just helping them in their life, healing their relationships and working through that, but also to teach them truth. I cannot stand the idea that people are passing every day all around us, having thousands of different ideas of what life is truly about and not really knowing. That's why depression is at an all-time high and suicide and anxiety. And now sexuality, everybody's like, I don't even know. I'm so confused. I don't even know if, if, if I'm a boy, if I'm a girl, if I'm just a spirit in between. You know why? Because there's no more clarity. There's no foundation of truth. And Jesus is trying to bring it all back and said, listen, let's sum it up. Forget denominations, forget religions. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And there ain't no other way. I define love, I define truth, and I am the foundation of life. If you want to be successful and know what life is truly about, trust me. Anything outside of me is going to end badly. And so here he is teaching, and just as we are to do the same. And then he closes it up. Just before his crucifixion, which is like six days later. And so the day before his his crucifixion, just prior to it, I don't want to say exactly a day, but... He meets with the disciples and he sets it all up in such a way, the same way he set it up for him to get the donkey, which was really weird because he sent the disciples over to a man and says, they said, just let it loose, take it away and and just tell the guys that uh, Jesus asked for this and, and he'll let you have it. Now he says, now go to this guy's house. He's got a perfect place for us to meet. We're going to have the Passover, the feast of the Passover. And he said, just tell him Jesus needs it and he'll give it to you. So they did and the man did and he set it all up. So he meets with them. Even Judas shows up. And by the way, we knew all the way back to Mary and Martha that Judas was a thief. He was a thief from the beginning. He was stealing from the money that they were raising. I don't know if you knew that. So Jesus already knew this guy is shady, but God was showing mercy through Jesus. And so here we are at the Passover, the feast of the Passover. Now remember, the feast of the Passover is the celebration of the, if you want to call it redemption, or the being set free from the slavery that was taking place in Egypt, remember? So they would take of the juice, the wine, and from the, the Bible says, from the vine, fresh juice, and they would drink of it, and they would take of unleavened bread. Unleavened means that it wasn't able to, as we would say in layman's terms, swell up, or, uh, and that was symbolic too. There's nothing about this that's appealing, and the bread didn't taste good. It's to remind them of the bitterness of Egypt, And say, now we have something completely different. So he breaks it down. And he meets with them in Matthew chapter 26, 26 through 30. And the Bible says, as they were eating, Jesus took of the bread and blessed it and break it and gave it into the disciples. And then he says something that the disciples were like, what? He says, take, eat, this is my body. All right. This is going to get weird and creepy real fast because if you don't really clearly understand the symbolicness of it, then it just sounds weird, okay? Something like from Indiana Jones. The reality was simply this. Jesus was saying everything we're doing is very symbolic. We, we have a remembrance of the blood that was shed of the lamb that put on the doorpost. So we take of the juice because it's red. We eat of the bread, the representation of the trials and the tribulations we went through. And the bread doesn't taste good. It's to remind us of the bitterness. They didn't even add herbs that were bitter, Okay summing this up. But he said, now I want to I change things. I'm putting this in my own terms, okay? Just so we all have clarity. I want you now to think this way. Get past Egypt. That's gone. I got a New Testament. I, knew, I got a new doctrine. And you know what it is? I'm going to die. And when I die, I want you to never forget what I've done. Never forget me. 
Because I'm not coming back until I come for the, as we refer to as the rapture. I want you to take this bread and remember, it's me and my body's going to be broke. Do you know what the Bible says? Not one bone in his body was ever broke. Every bone in his body was pulled out of joint when he was crucified. He went through some horrible, horrific things. His, his body, according to the book of Psalms, was literally ripped in such a way through the cat of nine tails and the crucifixion that he said in the book of Psalms that I look down and I can see my bones, they look and stare upon me. That means he was ripped open. And so he's telling the disciples, what I'm about to go through, it's like breaking bread. I'm going to be tore apart for you guys, and I love you guys. I'm not an average king. I'm going to die, and I'm going to die because I want to be the final sacrifice. No more killing lambs. I'm the perfect person to take away men's sins. And then he takes of, uh, of, and then he distributes it, which is interesting. That's like a gift. He gives it. He gives it to them, right? Isn't this cool? Because we know that salvation is a gift. It's free. You don't have to work to do it. There's so many religions and denominations that are going through the motions like you got to have, we were talking about Lent and we were talking about these different days that people celebrate and we talk about people going through to mass and counting beads and it's like, that's all you, you're doing that. But Jesus said, don't, you can't do anything to get yourself into heaven. It's me, it's a gift. All you have to do is believe me. Believe I'm real, I really lived, I really died and I really rose again and believe I did it to take away the sins and symbolically speaking, I want you to imagine that my body broken for you when you eat this bread. So he gives it to me. He said, it's free. All you have to do is believe. Faith doesn't require anything except belief. You can believe anything you want. And Jesus said, but if you believe in me, you're going to have a life, a new life. And so he distributes it. He gives it. And then the Bible goes on and explains that they ate it. Now, he said, this is my body and remember to me. He said, now, some people are really strange when it comes to doctrine. Doctrines means teaching. And there's, you know, certain religions that believe that it becomes the body of Christ. And they, that's cannibalism. That is contrary to the scripture. And that's really weird. It is symbolic. Everybody understands what a picture is. It's symbolic. And he's saying, when you eat this, it, it means this. I indwell in you and you are part of me. We're in this together. If you trust me and believe in me, it's like I, and I indwell in you. And so the Bible even explains it simply by saying that we are a part of the body of Christ. We're one. And so he goes on to explain one more thing. The symbolism of this food that they're taking in is important to never forget. I am doing this for you. 2,000 years later, guess what we're doing today? We're remembering just like 1,500 years prior to Jesus, Moses came. They sacrificed the lamb 1,500 years later. They remembered, and Jesus flips it and said, now it's about me. It's not about animals. I'm the final sacrifice. Then he takes of the juice in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 27. And the Bible says when he takes of the juice, he says, this is the New Testament. This represents my blood. I'm going to shed my blood, and I'm doing it for you. And there is no remission of sin. There's no forgiveness of sin unless I go through what I'm about to go through and they drank thereof. This is one of the most powerful things as believers that we can reminisce on because we're remembering the greatest sacrifice that was ever made. And let me tell you something. It's real. This really happened. It's the truth. And as believers, Christians, I want to challenge you to take this time right now to look at your life and understand where you are. 
What does it mean to be a believer in Jesus Christ? What does it mean to accept Christ as your Savior? In just a minute, we're going to take this, we're going to take this pod because it's just easier to put it all together right here. And on top is what represents the bread, the body of Christ, and then the juice inside. This is just juice. And we're going to take of it. We're going to have communion. But I'm going to challenge you to do this. Do not take of communion if you haven't given your life to Christ. Just sit there and chill. It's cool. But if you completely understand, it's important. And I want you to do this. I want you to know, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat of the bread and drink of the cup, which is the juice, unworthily. The Bible says he's guilty. The Bible says in verse 28, to examine yourself. It says, look at yourself and make sure you know what you're doing is the right thing to do. Because you don't want to do this with complacency or hypocrisy like the temple Remember, if you're a believer, you are the temple. He said, do it intentionally, intimately, 